Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. This is episode number 200 of Crazy Money. I'm super excited to have made it to this number. Five years, 40 episodes per year equals 200 episodes. And this experience, this project that we didn't know where it was going to go, you know, five years ago when I started with Mike Carano, who encouraged me for a long time, even before that, and I wish I'd listened to him earlier. He encouraged me even before that to start the podcast. He encouraged me that writing and recording and interviewing people about money and happiness was a worthwhile goal and that people would show up. And they have. And the people have been the best part of this experience. The relationships that I've built with my guests, the people I've gotten to meet, I got to talk to LL Cool J for 45 minutes. That was amazing. And I've met so many other people, great authors, great academics, Rich Beam, the PGA golfer who's hilarious, the former PGA champion, and the listeners, you, the listener. I've heard from so many of you over the years that you've enjoyed or gotten meaning through this podcast and through the conversations we have. And I think that's all we really want even if we don't know it, we want our work to be meaningful. We want to help other people. And on that level, this podcast has been uh, quite rewarding to me. And so I thank you. I'm thrilled. I'm most gratified that I've gotten to stay in touch with people that I knew in high school, people I used to work with at Yahoo and Facebook and launch.com and new people that have just stumbled on the podcast and have reached out and said, hi, so thank you to all of you on this 200th episode. If you want to share it with some friends, please do. If you want to send me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com or reach out to me on the socials, I sure would be happy to hear from you. This week, we've got a, a second timer. Speaking of relationships that we've had on this podcast or that have started on this podcast, I've gotten to know a guy named Jared Dillion through his writing, through the books that he's written. And we spoke at the same conference a year or so ago. He's one of the authors that I've gotten to know through the podcast. And he's got a new book out. It's called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. And I found it to be very well-written, extraordinarily easy to read, and full of great financial wisdom presented in a very simple manner. As we discuss in this conversation, I think this is a perfect book for young people coming out of college new couples starting a household together because he just lays it out in very, very simple terms. His theory, let's talk about this. He might call it a canard, a canard, a lie, a myth that other financial gurus like Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman preach the gospel of frugality and that the key to achieving wealth or at least hitting financial stability is to cut back on the little indulgences like that daily latte from Starbucks, That's that latte that you love so much. Jared's point of view is contrary to that. He says, actually, trying to cut the little joys out of your life will make you less happy, and, and it's not sustainable. But he says you've got to focus on the big things. It's the house. It's your car. It's how much you pay for college. It's how many kids you have. It's who you marry. It's the big decisions in life that affect your long-term financial viability. The interest rate on your loan, on your car, or on your house, alone by itself, I said loan twice there, by itself could cost you more than a lifetime worth of coffee. And that's his argument. 
Jared is a renowned investment strategist and author. He's written one of my favorite books about Wall Street. It's called Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers. We talked about that the first time we met two years ago, back in late 2020 or early 2021. And he's the editor of the popular financial newsletter, The Daily Dirt Nap, which, as he says, he earns over a million and a half dollars a year producing. On this week's episode, we talk about striking the balance between being a cheap and a high roller, why renting is often a much better idea than buying a home, how much student debt is okay, and the five asset classes you should own in his awesome portfolio. It's a counterintuitive way to structure your portfolio that uh, I think you'll find interesting. It's at least thought-provoking. And it's not something you're going to hear from your financial advisor because the way he advises you to structure it does not fit with the business model of registered investment advisors. Uh, And speaking of which, here's your disclaimer. This episode contains a discussion of investment strategies and theories, but in no way should be construed as personal financial advice. Investing in any of these asset classes mentioned can result in material losses. Wow, I sound like a financial professional when I say that, but indeed I am not. All right. Uh, Oh, Jared also graciously shares insight into his bipolar disorder and the side effects of the meds that he takes. And in so doing helps continue to destigmatize mental illness. And for that, I thank him. Ladies and gentlemen, hey, all y'all, this is Jared Dillion. When does the book come out? January? January 23rd. Okay. How you been? Pretty good. What's been going on? Uh, One of my cats passed away. I read that. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. How long has that been? Nine days. So... How does the grieving process go? I mean, I was just a puddle for like three days straight, like couldn't function. It was really tough. Yeah. I don't have kids. I can't have kids. So we got a bunch of cats. The cats are my kids. Right. She was pretty young. She was only 10 years old and she had some health problems. She had lymphoma and we were expecting to have her. The doctors told us we'd have her another two years. And literally she died like a week later after they told us that. So, yeah. I don't have the same, I I do have kids, but I've never really had the same kind of like orientation toward animals that my wife does. My kids do. They think I'm a beast, a heartless beast. (laughs) Where do you think that comes from? Did you have it before you knew you couldn't have kids? Yeah, I've always, I mean, I've had cats my whole life, you know, I've always been like that. Where does a cat live on a Coast Guard cutter? Well, that was the thing. Like when I was in the Coast Guard, I really couldn't have a cat some of the writing you've done recently like you're bringing more and more of you've always brought yourself into it but you're bringing more and more personal stuff all the time yeah why don't you want to be cremated (laughs) (laughs) i don't know man i just uh does it freak you out it kind of freaks me out yeah you're gonna get burned up yeah yeah you'd rather rot in a hole than get burned up Why? <laughs> you, I mean, you know, it's funny is that you're sort of like, you know, you're a very real, real guy. You've got a real tight sense of mortality and the fleeting nature of every day. And you appreciate the little things, but like you've got a couple of hangups. Oh, yeah, for sure. So your hair looks good, man. Your hair looks great. That's uh, I didn't take a shower this morning. That's all right. That's all right. It's funny because I absolutely want to be cremated. I have no desire whatsoever for anybody to buy a box and for me to take up any real estate 
anywhere in the world for my rotting corpse. <laughs> Do you feel like it's not like you say you want to have a huge funeral? Yeah, 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 yeah. You said, what do you say? Weddings are optional, but funerals are mandatory? Yep, yep. That's backwards in my mind. No, absolutely not. No. Why not? Convince me I'm wrong about this. I mean, it's like I said in that piece, like I went to a memorial service recently and it wasn't somebody I was super close to, but that's why I went. I wanted to pay my respects and the people there were so happy that I was there. Yes. They were very glad that I came. And if I didn't come, they probably wouldn't have noticed, you know, but it really made a difference that I came. And I've been to funerals and memorial services where not a lot of people showed up and it is, it is terrible. It is terrible. Like, is that for people of like middle aged when they yeah, die yeah. middle aged? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, the older you get, the fewer people show up to your funeral, right? For sure. Yeah. My dad died at ninety three. He actually died during COVID, so that's not a fair comparison. But you know, when ninety three year olds die, eighty percent of their friends have already died. Yeah, they got grandchildren yep. and stuff. But I agree with the sentiment that like I've gone to some funerals where people have been very very grateful because I was one of those bubble friends you know it's like i didn't have to go and it means a lot for the people around the person who died but it doesn't the person who's dead doesn't know whether you're there or not right (laughs) it is immaterial to that person's emotions that day whether or not you show yeah that's true it's really more for the family it's more for the survivors it's totally for the and weddings and it's you know like the whole we're going through this next generation i'm one of six kids and the next generation of kids are, you know, get into their thirties. And so we've got three weddings in seven months, I think. Yep. And you know, it's like weddings are the places that you get together where you you sort of have to go. Those are the times that you look back in your life and go, Oh, the last 20 years, the only time I saw these people was like maybe a Christmas and then, you know, like two weddings or something. Yeah. Well, you only die once, but you can get married more than one time. (laughs) Yes, so I guess so. So that, you know, you know, the really important people are the people who come to your fourth wedding. Those are the people. <laughs> those are your true friends who are going to stick with you. My dad's on his fourth marriage. Are, are those all divorces, or were there were there deaths? Divorces. Yeah. What was his fourth wedding like? Oh, I didn't go. I didn't <laughs> well, go. See, there's your point. Yeah. I mean, I'll just put it this way. The common denominator in all of those marriages was my dad. So right. you, you can assign. Correct. Correct. Doesn't mean the other person he was married to is perfect, but he's yep. the common denominator. Yeah. We're going to dive into your new book, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life, which is incredibly easy to read. And speaking of these weddings I'm going to, I feel like this book is perfect for young couples who are just getting started, new college graduates who maybe aren't as familiar. You can never be too familiar with the concepts you get into the book, but I think this is great for young people who are just starting out. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, in my newsletter, I tell people, I'm like, if you've got kids or nieces or nephews or college graduates, like, get, you know, order the book for them. Yeah. So. It's a real combination. Again, you put yourself, I want to talk about the concept of mental health, and then we're going to get into the book, right? Because you've got a newsletter that you send out. You publish every week? Every day. You publish every, wait. Oh no, you publish your financial newsletter every day. Every day. The Daily Dirt Nap. Tell us about that. I've been doing that for 15 plus years. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a daily newsletter. 
I'm kind of a top-down macro guy. It's really meant for sophisticated people, institutions and such. Like I said, I'm top-down. I look at all the asset classes and I'm really focused on sentiment. That's my edge is figuring out when people are the wrong side in a trade and going the other way. So, yeah. And you started that when you were still a trader at Lehman back in what, yep. 08? I started in 04. Yeah. But you started writing? What year did you start writing? I started writing Bloomberg commentary in 04, and I started doing the newsletter in 08 after the bankruptcy. Right. So you made it official in 08. Yeah. <laughs> you needed something to bring in the income. And you've yeah. grown it to the point where you made over $1.5 million last year. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awesome, man. You know, the newsletter business is kind of funny because it's one of these things that looks easy, but is actually hard. Not to me, it doesn't look easy. It looks. I think to a lot of people, it looks easy. Like there's, you know, when I started, there weren't that many newsletters out there. And now there's a whole bunch. Like I've attracted a lot of imitators and people say, well, this guy's successful. How hard can it be? And it's really hard to get people to pay for what you write, yeah. no matter what you're writing. You know what I mean? So the business has actually not been great the last couple of years. You know, since the bull market peaked in 2021, I actually made 1.9 million in 21 and 1.7 million in 22 and 1.5 this year. Because people think they can make money without insight? No, it's because the market got hard, right? We had a bear market in 2022. Things got hard and people just gave up, you know. People unsubscribe to me sometimes and the feedback I usually get is I'm just not trading anymore. I give up. Like I'm, right. I'm just going to go to T-bills or index funds or I'm just going to stop trading. Yeah. I hear that all the time. Wow. So hang on a second. I've even got your other book right here. Where is it? Those Bastards, right? Your collection. Yeah, yeah. This is from your consumer newsletter though, right? Yeah. The Substack. Yeah. Yeah. The Substack. You publish this what? Weekly or biweekly? Usually every five or six days. Okay. You've got two books out right now. This came out, what, six months ago last summer? April. April of 2023, Those Bastards, yep. 69 Essays on Life, Creativity, and Meaning. One of the things that I really enjoy is that you put yourself out there, and you're very frank. And you talked about this in your other book that brought you to my attention with Street Freak, your book about Wall Street, trading on Wall Street during that period that you just described. And you talk very frankly about your experience with mental health. One of your more recent newsletters, you talked about the effects of prolonged use of antipsychotics. And I just wondered if you could just share that with your history there and how you struggle with that still to today. I'm bipolar. I have bipolar one, got diagnosed in 2006, and I'm really one of the lucky ones. You know, I, I was in a very good hospital and the docs got the medications right the first time, which is not usually everybody's experience. Usually, People, when they're diagnosed with some kind of mental illness, they experiment with the meds and they don't get it right. And they, they're constantly switching meds until they find the right one. And it's very hard. I got it right the first time. So I've been on basically the same meds for the last 17, 18 years. The problem is, is that if you take these meds for a really long time, they have side effects. And the side effects are what's called tardive dyskinesia which is uncontrolled movements of your hands and your face, right? With basically your handshake. Mm. What is tardive? movement. What is, what is yeah. tardive? Dyskinesia. Tardive. I don't know what tardive means, but it's not that much of a handicap, but it's a little embarrassing. Like if I go out to dinner with clients or something and I pick up a glass of water, my hands just start shaking and people are like, are you nervous? And I'm like, no, it's, you know, that I have to explain <laughs> 
But it's not like you make a secret of this stuff. You write about it in very public forums, you know? Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's kind of different writing about things than it is talking about it in person. I'd much rather write about Mm. mental illness than talk about it. You know what I mean? Like, that's harder for me. Yeah. Because there's a stigma about it or? No, I mean, I'm kind of over the stigma at this point. And I think the stigma has lessened a lot over the years. It's not so much that it makes me uncomfortable. It makes other people uncomfortable. Right. You know what I mean? So that's what Michael J. Fox says about his uh, Parkinson's. You know, he's like, he's like, I know this. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes other people uncomfortable. But because he talks about it, because he puts himself out there, he's, he's kind of normalized it for, yeah, for, yeah. for society. But you even talk about there's weight gain involved. There's sexual side oh, yeah. effects to these meds. Oh, yeah. Like I've. I have put on, and don't get me wrong, I don't really watch my diet, but, you know. <laughs> I've seen you at a buffet, Jared. We've, been, we've, <laughs> we've spoken at the same conference. so I, I've put on 70 pounds since I started taking the meds. Wow. I mean, some, and some of that's getting older. You know, I'm 20 years older, so. So over that period, those decades. Yeah. 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 You've tried Ozempic, and that helped briefly, but. Was expensive, so I stopped. What's Ozempic so. cost? Uh, about a thousand dollars a month. Does it really? Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. if you're at risk of dying because of obesity, you know, no amount of money is too much. Well, and also if you're super rich and you're just you care about your appearance a lot, you'll pay a thousand bucks a month to lose twenty pounds. Right. You know? so, well, maybe if I was a model or something. Mm-hmm. Your vice is what you just put in your lip, though. Your yeah. <laughs> What are they, is that a Zen? What do they call those? Zen, yeah. The here. Zen nicotine patches. There you go. We're not endorsing those on this program, just FYI. <laughs> well, I just want to say that I appreciate you being up front and talking about these kinds of things because I think it's helpful to people to be, you know, to talk about depression. 20 years ago, we didn't talk about this stuff. And it's because of people like you who've, who've experienced it, put themselves out there and, and talk about their experiences that other people feel comfortable getting treatment, talking about it with their families. And I just think we have become more informed and empathetic people because of the conversations yeah, 100%. that you've had. So thanks. Yeah, 100%. Thank you. So one of the things that seems to have inspired you to write this book is a, is a desire to give other people comfort in their lives, to help them see that money doesn't have to be an affliction or an obsession. Tell me how you came to the thesis of the book. Well, so I, I had a radio show a few years back from 2019 to 2021, and it was one of these talk radio shows where people call in and ask questions. And, yep. you know, I did it for five nights a week, two hours a day. It was nationally syndicated. You know, it was funny, like, after listening to people's calls, basically the the one takeaway that I had was that there is a personal finance industry out there. And it's made up of Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and Robert Kiyosaki. And then like a whole, like thousands of bloggers, like thousands of YouTubers and bloggers and stuff like that. And they all basically say the same thing, which is you have to be very vigilant about expenses. You have to cut expenses to the bone. Consumption is the enemy. Consumption is evil. You're going to save a million dollars. $1 at a time, $5 at a time, $10 at a time by giving up coffee, by giving up uh, food, by, you know, I was basically in this radio station 
like every single night and and I was basically talking to myself, you know, I, I wasn't getting that many calls and I started <laughs> to think <laughs> all about marketing, dude. <laughs> I was, you need a better was, producer. Come on. Yeah. That, that's not your fault. I kept coming back to this idea of financial stress, right? And basically the fact that the personal finance industry is compelling people to do things which increase their stress. Now, the goal here is to make them the most money. I mean, that's like if you look at the personal finance bookshelf in Barnes and Noble, there's books like Seven Ways to Become a Millionaire and Ten Ways to Become a Millionaire and stuff like that. But maybe the goal isn't to be a millionaire. Maybe the goal is to just be comfortable and happy and relaxed and not thinking about money all the damn time, you know, which is like if you're a Dave Ramsey disciple and you're putting money in envelopes and you're screwing around with this stuff, like you're constantly thinking about money. It's an obsession. And, you know, I actually, of all the people I know, I have the healthiest relationship with money. Like I really... You know, I have to think about it for my job, but when I'm not in front of this Bloomberg screen with all the charts and stuff, I really don't spend any time thinking about it. You know, I don't have any money stress at all. So, but there's a difference between thinking about money because it's your job and you write about markets and obsessing about your bank balance and your credit card bills and things like that. There is a difference, but I mean, I mean, look, I said at the beginning of the interview that I make over a million dollars a year. So obviously I probably don't obsess about credit card bills, you know, because, you know, I'm in a position, well, for sure. Like there are some people who do, but I lost my train of thought. We're talking about the difference between writing about money and obsessing about your personal relationship with money. And you can make a million bucks a year and still spend way, way, way too much money. There's a lot of people that do that. Probably more than don't actually. One of the biggest pieces of feedback I've gotten from the book, or when I tell people about the premise, and I tell them that the only two sources of financial stress are debt and risk. Mm. Debt and risk. Those are the only two sources of financial stress. And people say, well, what if you don't have any money? And I'm like, look, I know people that don't have any money, and they're perfectly happy because they don't have debt. They don't have a car payment. They don't have a house payment. They don't have credit card bills. They don't have an S&P 500 index fund, which is moving around 3% a day. Like they don't have any of these things. They live paycheck to paycheck. They have enough money. If they lost their job, they go on unemployment. There's nothing to worry about. They literally are living a stress-free financial life and they have no money. On the other hand, you have Elon Musk, who is the richest guy in the world, who almost went tits up because he bought Twitter (laughs) He bought Twitter and like pledged Tesla stock as collateral and Tesla went down 75% and the richest man in the world almost got a margin call. Yeah. He almost blew himself up, the richest guy in the world. Like that is a lot of financial stress. It was entirely because he structured his life that way. You know, so it's really not a function of how much money you have at all. People at, at any income level can experience stress or not experience stress. So- Depending upon the amount of debt or the amount of risk we have in our life. Yeah. And what are the sources of risk in life, in financial life? Well, usually when you're thinking about risk, you're thinking about like portfolio risk, like your investments. But there's there's a chapter in the book which kind of talks about risk in general terms and how people think about risk and how 
a lot of times people think small risks are big risks and they think big risks are small risks. People generally don't have an ability to determine risk, right? And I think the example I used in the book was, and this, this is a classic example. If you're a parent, you have kids. What is the number one thing in the world that you're worried about? Chester the molester, right? That some, <laughs> that some pervert is going to jump out of the bushes and like grab your kid and molest them. But that would be the worst thing in the world, right? I mean, Jared read Hustler in the 1980s. That's, <laughs> that I recognize that reference, unfortunately. <laughs> but that would, if you're a parent, that's the worst thing in the world. You know how many times a year that happens? A, a tiny number of times. 115 times a year, mm-hmm. which is 80 people are struck by lightning every year. So it's almost, it's just about the same risk as getting struck by lightning. And that statistic, by the way, now lots of children are abducted, but this is children who are abducted by strangers. Okay. So usually children are abducted by family members. So children who are abducted by strangers 115 times a year. So not that we're minimizing the impact on those 115 families, but that's a small number of families relative to the 330 million people that live in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a one in a billion shot. So, but what parents do is they don't let their kids walk to school because they're worried about Chester the molester. So they drive their kids to school. But once you put your child in the car, the risk that they are going to be killed in a car accident goes up exponentially. Yeah. You know, 35,000 people are killed in car accidents every year. So just by driving a mile to school, you've greatly increase the risk that something's going to happen to your child. And this is what I said. People think small risks, chest of the molester, are big risks. And they think big risks, like driving a car, are small risks. If people understood how dangerous driving a car, if they really understood how dangerous it was, they wouldn't do it. You know, And we just accept that risk as a form of life. So I kind of had this discussion in the chapter just as you know how people perceive risk generally. Yeah. So. Let's go back to our genetic makeup or or our tendencies as human beings. You break people down into basically two categories, high rollers and cheap fucks. Tell me a little bit more about those two inclinations. Yeah, I called them CFs in the book because they wouldn't let me swear in the book. So <laughs> CF. So Okay, CFs then we'll talk about yeah. And getting back to the personal finance industry, if you look at like the Dave Ramsey people, they talk about this mythological person that buys a $100,000 Chevy Silverado. Their their car payment is bigger than their house payment. They have a 570 credit score. They have credit card bills. This person that lives way beyond their means, right? And we kind of, like, that's like the myth. Like, we believe there are millions of people like that. And there are. There's lots of people like that. But Americans in general are pretty good with money. People have figured out one one interesting thing is that credit scores have been trending higher for years. Americans are getting more frugal. Credit scores, this is statistically significant. They've been going much higher over the last 20 years. Why is that? Because people are better about not spending a lot on credit cards, paying down debt, all that stuff. What the personal finance industry has created in the U.S., is this whole population of cheap fucks, right? (laughs) We are full of cheap people in this country. People who will stiff waiters on a tip, 
people who won't tip the valet, people who cheap out on Christmas gifts. We are descended from the Puritans. Okay. We really are. We are descended from the Puritans. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, if you're cheap, there's no consequences to that. Like you'll never go bankrupt. You'll always have money. And that's true, but there are consequences. And the consequences are relationships, right? If you've ever known somebody who was really cheap, you know that that person is really hard to be around, you Mm -hmm. know, because of their actions. And it affects relationships. And, you know, the classic one is you have a child that is smart and wants to go to a good school, but the parents won't pay for it. And then the kids end up in therapy like 15 years later. So when I was reading that section of the book, my reaction was, okay, fair enough point. And I see in myself both the CF and the high roller in different ways. But the CF is never going to be a ward of the state financially speaking. No. When it comes to the government forgiving hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans, those are not CFs whose loans are being forgiven. No. No CF is going to ask his brother-in-law for 25 grand because he spent all his, his income last year on a jet ski. And so I'm like, okay, but which is the worst of these two scenarios? Even though I agree with you that there's many people out there who won't allow themselves to enjoy their money. I would say they're both equally bad. I would say they're both equally bad. And the whole point of the book is to find balance between the two, right? Yeah. And like you said, you have elements of a CF and elements of a high roller, which means you're probably somewhere in the middle, which means you have a healthy relationship with money. And that's the goal is to have a healthy relationship with money where you don't really think about it all that much. And it's kind of easy come, easy go, and everything's fine. <laughs> I have a friend who is the biggest CF in the world, in the, like on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I have another friend who is the biggest high roller on the planet. And you could not get two more diametrically opposed people. They're both terrible. They're both terrible <laughs> for completely different reasons. You know what I mean? Right. This is a quick story about the, about the cheap guy. Uh, he came to visit me in Myrtle Beach. Like This is like 10 years ago. He didn't pay for anything the whole trip. Like, Mm. you you know, I had to pay for everything, which I knew was going to happen. And that's fine. We pull into a Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru and he's like, I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm like, okay, that's great. So he ordered a muffin for 49 cents. And he's like, what do you want? I'm like, I'll get a chicken biscuit. And the chicken biscuit was $3.49. This guy lost his shit in the car that I was getting a $3 chicken biscuit. I mean, totally lost it. Started screaming like it was crazy. There's a lot of people like that. Yeah. There's a lot of people like that. I mean, I guess I would end up avoiding that kind of person. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the thing where as you grow up, you know, you get out of college or whatever, you know, you as you become an adult, you, you sort of gravitate toward people that have the same attitudes and resources that you have. Yeah. And I think we've all been at dinners where it's like somebody's ordering $400 bottles of wine and yeah, I'll have a couple of glasses, but I'm not in for 600 bucks, which would be my half of the wine for dinner that night. And so it's about finding people who kind of have the same attitudes and ability to party on the same level, you know? Yep. Yep. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Jared in just a second, but I want to remind you that I am hitting the road in 2024, and I want you 
or your friends who live in the places where I'll be to come out and see me tell jokes in person. It'll be great, won't it? It's going to start out December 30th in Black Mountain, North Carolina, right there outside of Asheville at the White Horse Black Mountain. January 11th, I will be in Austin, Texas at Roscoe's Comedy Club with my friend Paul Faravahar. Faravahar. With our Two Pauls, One Show show. We'll also be doing that show at, on February 22nd at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. That's right. It's an intellectual kind of town. We're doing that same show again, Zany's Comedy Club in Nashville, Tennessee on February 28th and taking it to the D.C. Comedy Loft April 19th and 20th. May 3rd and 4th, I'll be headlining the Denver Comedy Lounge in Denver, Colorado. That's May 3rd and 4th. All these dates are on my website, paulollinger.com. Oh, also doing the country club shows around Atlanta, Dunwoody Country Club on January 25th with Andrew Stanley. January 26th, I'll be hosting for Mia Jackson at Capital City Club right down the street from where I'm sitting right now. April 18th, Atlanta Athletic Club. Uh, Headliner to be determined on that one. And I think there's another one, but I can't remember it right now. Anyway, paulollinger.com for the whole list of shows. If you can't come, tell your friends to come out. Thank you so much. Back to Jared. I used to be a CF. I Uh used to be a CF. What changed? Besides, you made more money over time. Well, do you remember the story in the book about the Prada boots? Yeah. You're in Vegas, right? No, I was in uh, San Francisco. You wouldn't go to that store these days, but no, anyway. I wouldn't. Probably closed. Yeah. yeah. So you go into this store and say, I think I've been into it's you go into a Prada store off of Union Square, right? Yep. And you saw some boots and what'd you think? I looked at the price tag. I mean, they were the most beautiful boots I had ever seen. I was like, I really want these. I looked at the price tag and they were a thousand bucks. Yep. And I had never paid more than like eighty dollars for a pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, well, I make about four hundred grand a year. Business seems to be going well. I want the boots. Like, I'll buy the boots. And that was the moment in which I started to have a healthier relationship with money because it was also an expression of optimism. And you probably saw my recent Substack about how debt is an expression of optimism. And I really wish I'd remembered to put that in the book. I meant to put that in the book and I forgot. But spending in debt is an expression of optimism. It's It means that you're optimistic that things are going to get better in the future. You're going to make more money. And that's a terrible excuse for spending huge amounts of money. But I would rather be around the optimist than the pessimist who think that things are always going to be terrible and you can't spend money. You know, I thought about that as well. And I, I remember yeah, I started making some money when I was in my early 30s. I paid off my student loans when I was 32, and the richest I ever felt was the day I paid off my student loans. I've said that yep. 100 times before. I'll say it 100 more times on this show. And then I started like, oh, okay, well, you know, I was making a few hundred grand a year selling ads at Yahoo, and I'm like, I'm doing well. So I started buying like watches and buying nicer stuff, not going crazy, and I was still renting, and I had no dependents and all that. And I started buying stuff that were outward indications that I was doing well. Yep. And what I found is that later on in life, even after I made, you know, a lot of damn money at Facebook, I bought a nice house. We take nice vacations. I don't care about watches anymore. And I have a very small number of nice pairs of shoes. I have a very small number of nice jackets, you know, like I just buy a couple of nice things. I don't need to try to blow people away because I'd rather spend the money on something else. And I have a whole lot of other obligations to my family and our, you know, in their private school and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. That's where I'm somewhere in between. Yep. It's a good place to be. All right. You take the contrarian, and at least in terms of personal finance gurus, the contrarian idea that forget to buy your coffee, buy your latte at Starbucks if that's what you want to do. Enjoy your life. You can get the small things wrong, but you got to get the big things right. Talk yep. to me about the big things. Big things are house, car, and student loans. There's actually a fourth big thing, which uh, they didn't want me to write about in the book, but it's also how many kids you have. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you have eight kids, then, I mean, you're you're one of six kids, right? So, right, which is why I have two. <laughs> but leaving that aside, the house is the most important thing, the most important thing. And the problem with buying a house is that when people go shopping for a house, it becomes an emotional decision. Oh, yeah. Because they see a house they like. They're like, oh, we can, you know, we had a backyard for the kids and the dog can go over here and the TV goes here. And this is this is our house, right? And they get emotionally attached to it. The problem is the house is a hundred or $200,000 more than, than what their budget is. But they got pre-approved for the loan because, you know, you can get pre-approved for just gross amounts of money in a mortgage. So they buy the house. And like 42% of their income is going towards mortgage insurance and property taxes and maintenance, which means they've crowded out the ability to save for retirement, which means they're enjoying a higher standard of living today at the expense of a lower standard of living tomorrow. But we're going to build equity in the house, Jared. Yeah. And that works depending on where you live in the country. Like in some parts of the country, building equity in a house is worthless. And in some parts, it works out really well. It really depends on where you are. Because building equity in a house, it's really an investment in an asset class. It's an investment in real estate, which means you're saying, okay, like I live on this piece of earth in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I'm making an implicit bet that this piece of earth is going to do better than some other piece of earth in San Francisco. But the point is, if you spend an extra $100,000 on a house over the course of 30 years, assuming you don't make any prepayments, you will spend an additional $120,000 in interest. Mm. And interest is totally unproductive. What I say in the book is it's profits for the bank. You're paying for bank profits. It doesn't get you anything. You don't get any enjoyment out of paying interest. Like, have you ever known anyone said they were happy to pay interest? <laughs> you know, so this $120,000 in interest that you're going to spend is three times more than all the coffee you would drink in your entire life. People get really focused on the little things. They get focused on, okay, you know, maybe I shouldn't spend $4 at Starbucks for a cup of coffee. Buy the coffee. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. Like it's the big decisions. Like the house is the biggest one. Student loans is on par with that. And the car is probably third. But if you get the big things right, you don't have to worry about the little things. Tell me some non-obvious ways that people mess up the car and the student loans. Non-obvious ways? Tell me things that if you're talking to the 26-year-old who hasn't had as much life experience as you have, tell me how he's going to get screwed in ways he's not aware of. Well, the thing that I usually hear from 26-year-olds is, oh my God, I'm 26 years old and I don't have a house yet. I don't feel like an adult. Yeah. I hear you're, that you're a ton of that these days too. Yeah. I don't feel like an adult. In the United States, homeownership is a cult. It's an absolute cult. In our culture, we believe that everybody has to own a house. Absolutely not true. 
I didn't own a house till I was 40, by the way. I bought one when I was 24. And that was my first house. Yeah. So if you're 26 years old, like renting is cheaper than owning 90% of the time. 90% of the time, renting is cheaper than owning. Now, owning is usually better in the long term because you're building equity and the asset is appreciating and stuff like that. But in the short term, renting is definitely cheaper. I tell people all the time, it's fine to rent. It really is okay. It's not, it's not the end of the world. You're, like, you're, you're not, not an adult because you don't have a house. So people kind of barge into these decisions to you know saddle themselves with $500,000 worth of debt without really thinking about it because they want to be an adult and they want to own a house. That's, that's our culture. If you look around the world, homeownership rates are much, much lower than it is in the U.S. Okay, then the car. Car is pretty simple. A car is not a statement about who you are. It's not a status symbol. It's a way to get from A to B, okay? People spend 4% of their lives driving a car, okay? Like the capacity utilization of a car is 4%. There's one person riding it 45 minutes to work. There's one person riding it 45 minutes home. It sits in the parking lot at work. It sits in the park. It sits in the driveway of your house. You really don't spend that much time in a car. It shouldn't be an emotional decision. It's a it's a way to get from A to B. So my advice in the book, there's, you know, Dave Ramsey would say, well, you want to get a used car, right? Because they're cheaper. Well, a couple of problems with that. Used cars are really expensive now. So that's one problem. Problem number two is you don't really know the maintenance history of the car. So you might have bought a lemon and, you know, you could buy a $10,000 car and put $10,000 worth of work into it. So that could be a mess. So I'm like, get a cheap new car, get a Toyota, get a Hyundai, uh, get a Honda, get something that you can drive for 15 years and fully depreciate it. You get a five-year loan and you're driving it for 10 years without any debt on it. That's the way to do it. Yeah, 100%. Okay, let's talk about the kids thing too. We won't tell your publisher that we talked about this, but like, <laughs> tell me your theory on the number of kids you have. I'm not saying that there's a cap on the number of kids you have, but you just have to know that it, t- it costs an average of $250,000 to raise a child. So if you have four kids, that's a million dollars. That's a million dollars that you're not saving and investing that's going to grow over time. I mean, it's a multi-million dollar opportunity cost, which doesn't even include the time that you would spend maybe on work if you didn't have kids. Like if you have three or four kids, you're going to spend a lot of time with your kids. You're going to spend less time working, less time earning money. It's, it's a huge opportunity cost. So I'm totally biased. I don't have kids. Right. So this is what works for me and may not work for other people. Like, you know, I have a bunch of cats. The cats don't take much time. (laughs) It's absolutely true. It might not be popular. People don't want to think about it, but kids are very, very expensive. And, you know, we didn't really talk about student loans. And I think that's a huge relevant one as well. And if you have kids, you should be obligated to educate them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what's your attitude on student loans? Basically, that you should be able to pay off your student loan debt in five years. I like that idea. If you can't pay off your student loan debt in five years, then you borrowed too much. Well, how do you figure out if you're going to be able to do that? Because you bar- you make a decision, say you're 18, you're making a decision that you're going to borrow this money. How do you know if you're going to be able to pay it off by the time you're 27? 
if you graduate from college and you make $60,000 a year and you borrowed $40,000 in student loans, you could easily pay $8,000 a year and pay off your student loans in five years. The problem is the law that Obama signed in 2009, which put into place income-based repayment plans, Mm -hmm. right? So what the government does is says, they say, okay, your student loan payment is $700 a month, but you only make $60,000 a year. So your student loan payment is now $200 a month. And people are like, great, I'll pay $200 a month. But the problem is, is that that doesn't even cover the interest on the student loan and it amortizes negatively and the interest is added to the principal balance. So then you get these people on Twitter who are like Bernie Sanders supporters. They're like, I had $100,000 in student loans and I've been paying them for 10 years. Now I have 150000 So college should be free. I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't really work like that. Like, <laughs> like College these- is free if you go to the Coast Guard <laughs> Academy, right? That's true. That's true. Well, it's kind of free. I mean, you know, if you don't mind working for the government for five years. Yeah, yeah. So the income-based repayment plans were the worst thing. That was the worst thing in the world that they could have done, you know, because they effectively shielded people from the consequences of their decisions to borrow X amount of money to go to school, right? Yeah. But ultimately, they didn't shield them forever, just for a short period of time. And then, you know. What do you think should be done to fix the student loan borrowing or the the educational borrowing system? Well, the worst part about student loans is that you can't discharge them in bankruptcy, and they absolutely must be able to be discharged in bankruptcy. Who would be on the hook if that were the case? The government. Right. But would the government change its behavior of funding 100% of anybody's educational dreams? For sure. For sure. What nobody wants to do, and I'm not even suggesting that this is a good idea, but what nobody wants to do is check people's credit when they apply for student loans, right? Okay, you're an 18-year-old, you want to go to college, let's run your parents' credit score. Nope, sorry, you can't get student loans. Like, nobody wants to do that. But the other thing is, you know, I actually teach personal finance at a university, at Coastal Carolina University. I asked the students, I said to them, I was like, do you think student loan interest is too high or too low? So everybody raises their hands, it's too high. I'm like, all right, let's think about this. We're talking about unknown borrowers, right? We have no idea what your credit is. We are completely unknown borrowers. It's unsecured lending. There's no collateral. There's nothing to repossess. I'm like, credit cards, which is unsecured lending, have interest rates of like 20% a year. The credit card companies have your credit score. Like this is riskier than credit card lending. I, I Interest rates should really be like 30% a year on student loans. They're artificially low, you know? Right. So, seems to me like the institutions that are the recipients of all that money should have, you know, something on the hook. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Because if the, they're the ones that should have the best information as to whether the product they're providing is actually going to yield the income potential that would pay it off. Yep. hundred percent. So I don't know how to structure that, but that's, they should have skin in the game for sure. Yeah. Otherwise with all the free money, why not just raise tuition to a million dollars a year? There's some families out there that would pay it. Well, if you raise tuition to a million dollars a year, the government would lend against it. They would. Right. That's the cra- That's the. Yeah. There's an infinite supply of money yeah. in the system, so there's no incentive to contain costs or yep. to associate the value of a degree to market potential. Yep. So, all right, let's talk about how I can live a stress-free life as an investor. I'm your typical investor. I think I'm what seventy percent in equities, thirty percent in bonds. 
I'm protected, right? I shouldn't worry about my portfolio. I kind of have an idea of how old you are, and I would say you have too much in equities. I'm 54. Yeah, so I'm, I'll be 50 in March. So, Well, talk to me about, again, it's the conventional wisdom of a traditionally allocated and diversified portfolio. You have a different theory on the way things should work. I have a completely different theory. So here's the problem. Around the late 2010s, people became obsessed with index funds. You know, market was going up and people really get out of the game of picking stocks. And they said, I just want to put my money in the S&P 500 index fund. And there was a lot of data that was shown online, like on Twitter, that showed that 90% of active managers don't beat the index. And, you know, the index returns the most over time. Therefore, you should invest in the index, which is the stupidest thing ever. It's stupid. Like, it's just, like, why is it stupid? Because, I mean, think about how simplistic that is. This returns the most. Therefore, you should invest in that. There's other considerations than returns, right? Like the, and the biggest one is volatility, right? Like Bitcoin returns the most for sure, but it has insane amounts of volatility. But would you invest in Bitcoin because it returns the most? Like, would you put all your money in Bitcoin? Absolutely not, <laughs> right? So what I did was I did a lot of research. This was like five years ago on constructing a portfolio that gives you the maximum amount of return for the minimum amount of risk. And in the book, I called it the awesome portfolio and it's 20% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% gold, 20% cash, and 20% real estate. And this portfolio over the last 50 years has returned 8.1%, which is like 1% less than the stock market and has half the volatility. Who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't invest in something returns 1% less in the stock market with half the volatility? I don't know. Who wouldn't? I think it's a silver bullet. Why does it work? It works for a lot of reasons. Like when people invest in the S&P 500, they say, okay, I have 500 stocks. Therefore, I'm diversified. I have 500 stocks. Well, the problem is, is that first of all, they're all stocks. So they all kind of respond to the same macro variables. So 2008, the market shits the bed. It doesn't matter how many stocks. It doesn't matter how diversified you are. Yeah. Right. So you have to diversify across asset classes. So financial advisors do that. You do that. You have stocks and bonds. You have 70% stocks, 30% bonds. That works a lot of the time. There's long periods of time where bonds are negatively correlated with stocks. So that dampens volatility. But Right now, stocks are positively correlated with bonds, so that doesn't work. So then you have to start thinking about adding some other asset classes, and gold is the great diversifier. If you add gold to any portfolio, it gets better. It reduces the risk because gold is really not correlated to anything. It is at various points, but it kind of it kind of varies. But you add gold to a portfolio, and it brings down the risk. You add real estate, it brings down the risk some more, and it gives you some exposure to inflation, okay? And you add cash, and that really brings down the risk. And what's funny is when I first came up with this five years ago, interest rates were at zero. So people are like, why would you have cash in there? It earned zero. Well, now cash is yielding 5%, which is terrific. For another six months, right? Yeah. What's the value of cash besides it can only lose value due to inflation and optionality? I was going to say optionality because cash 
is an option to buy something cheaper in the future. I talk, there's a whole chapter where I talk about the optionality of cash. If you have cash, you might be able to buy a stock cheaper in the future. You might come across your dream house someday and buy the house. You might buy a boat. Like there's nothing more powerful in the world than liquid net worth. Literally just a pile of liquid assets or cash. That is the most powerful thing in the world. I'm a fifth. Uh, I have quintiles of my net worth in each of these asset classes. Huge buying opportunity comes along. I use my cash, probably not to buy a boat. I don't think I don't think we want people thinking I should buy a boat as they leave this. Uh, <laughs> but don't be a CF. If you want a boat, buy a boat. Just make sure it's a cheap, it's affordable. Okay, I have each of my asset class, a fifth of my assets in each of these classes. An opportunity comes along in the stock market. It takes a dive. I put 10% of my cash into the market to take advantage of that. Sure. When do I rebalance? Every year. Okay, and Every then year. so I sell off what? to put that money back in cash? Well, you know, at the end of the year, you know, stocks might be 25% of the portfolio. Bonds might be 15% of the portfolio. You're basically selling the winners to buy the losers and you get back to 20% at the end of the year. So, All right. And when you talk about real estate, there's a lot of ways to invest in real estate. Does the, does the equity in my house count as part of that 20%? Yes, it does. It does. Okay, so if I have a million in equity in my house, and let's say my portfolio is uh, ten million dollars, if I have a million in my house, then I should have a million in what other real estate investments? Like an ETF, like you know, just one of the broad market re ETFs or something like that. I was watching, I think it was MSNBC late night the other night, and I can buy these gold coins from the Franklin Mint. Is that where I should buy my gold? The most liquid way to buy gold is through the ETFs. So there's two big ones. There's GLD and IAU. They're super liquid. I mean, you can buy physical gold if you want. That's a whole other discussion. There's better places to buy physical gold than the Franklin Mint. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> I was being provocative. Like gold line or something yes. like that. There are some uh, eagle, commemorative eagle coins. Yeah. I think it might have been for Super Bowl 56 or yeah, something. Yeah, Chef does not recommend. No. Yes. Gold's got political implications too, right? I mean, the people you hear talking about buying gold or they think the world is going to collapse. Is that is that a realistic threat? Well, so I don't really think about any of that stuff with regard to gold in the awesome portfolio. Like it's, I, I just use it as a diversifier. And, you know, since 2005, gold and stocks have pretty much gone up the same amount. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to 2000, gold has gone up more. The one thing about gold is, obviously, it's different from stocks, but I would say it has a bigger right tail. I think it has the potential to go significantly higher or parabolic in certain circumstances, which is kind of a longer discussion. But Meaning it can spike more. It's more prone to upside than other yeah, asset classes. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of upside, talk about opening yourself up to upside. I mean, if you have a government job, um, like I did when I was in the Coast Guard, I was making like $45,000 a year. I had no upside. I didn't own any stock. I didn't own any options. I didn't, I had no exposure. I was making $45,000 a year and that's what I was going to make. So smart people get exposure to upside. And in this country, usually that's through equity in the company where you work at, you know, or getting equity or options. Uh, it can also be starting a business. Those are really the two main ways that you can get exposure to upside. I'm a Wall Street guy. Like, I'm a creature of Wall Street. Uh, I'm friends with a lot of other creatures of Wall Street. And we kind of talk about 
we're constantly talking about ways to get exposure to upside and things, you know, there's nothing worse than being capped at how much money you're going to make. Sure. And most people are, most people look, their jobs are jobs. Maybe they'll, if they're lucky, they have a pension, you know, hopefully they're funding their 401ks, but you can pretty much plot out where they're going to end up even in best case scenario. Yep. Yep. So how does the average person find upside? The best way is to start a business, start a business for sure. And it doesn't, doesn't have to be Facebook. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a, like a huge business. I mean, sell shit on Etsy, you know, or deliver pizzas or something like there's always things you can do to make more money. That's actually one point of the book, which I'd like to talk about. We haven't talked about it yet, but people are obsessively focused on expenses. They make $60,000 a year. Uh, they spend 55000 and they save 5000 right? So they're like, all right, how are we going to save more money? Where are we going to cut expenses? That's the first instinct is to cut expenses. People obsess about expenses, but they never look at the revenue side, right? They don't think about how to make more money. And the thing is, is that you can have a lot bigger impact on your bottom line by doing it through the revenue side. But the other thing is, it's a lot more fun. It's more fun. To, it's not fun to cut expenses. No, it's, it's not. Like, that's really not fun. But, like, to go out and make more money, that's huge amounts of fun. You know? Yeah. So, focus, open yourself up to upside, focus on bringing in more revenue, and focus on the big things. Those are yep. the general messages of no worries, how to live a stress free financial life from my guest, second time guest, Jared Dillion. Jared, where can our listeners find out more about you? You can follow me on Twitter at, at Daily Dirt Nap. You go to my Substack. It's called We're Going to Get Those Bastards. You definitely want to pre-order No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Go to Amazon. It's actually pretty much at any retailer. I actually have a special link for it. There's buynoworries.com. If you go to buynoworries.com, you can buy it anywhere in the world. So I will put that link in the show notes. Please pre-order Jared's very, most of the time publishers want us to put this episode out right as the book's coming out. But if you pre-order, you're doing, you're doing yourself a favor and putting it out before the end of the year, because this is the 200th episode of crazy money. And I'm, and I'm gratified that through the work on this podcast, I've got to know guys like you uh, who have enriched my life through friendship and writing and, and lots of good knowledge. Thanks for your, thanks for your, your partnership in all this, man. Thanks, Paul. That's great. Thank you. It's Jared Dillion. Like I told you in the introduction, his book, Street Freak, is a great read about life on Wall Street before the crash of 2008. It's up there with Liar's Poker and other reads. I also loved uh, Ghost of Manhattan, written by Douglas Brunt, who's married to Megan Kelly, by the way. Anyway, I enjoyed reading this book, his new book, No Worries, How to Live a, a Stress-Free Financial Life. Like I said, I think it's really good for young people who need to get a grasp on some of these basic concepts as early as possible. And Jared writes in a very accessible, easy to understand way. I ripped through this book. It was super easy to read. I don't totally agree with him on his theory about CFs versus high rollers. I think high rollers are dangerous to themselves and to society. Uh, CFs might be boring and not fun to hang out with, but uh, they're never going to they're never going to come to you for a loan. They're never going to. Uh, they're never going to be a burden on the state. Doesn't mean you have to hang out with them, but <laughs> you know, they're not going to end up in bankruptcy court. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Two hundred episodes in the can. We're going to uh, take a little hiatus here for another few weeks 
as we enjoy the holidays and think about where we're going in 2024. I am very grateful to you for your support, listening all the way to the end. You're obviously a sick person if you've listened all the way to the end of any of these episodes, but I appreciate your support. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Please share it with some friends and please accept my gratitude for for being a part of the Crazy Money community. All right, we'll see you in a few weeks. Have a great holiday. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, and uh, Happy, Happy New Year.